Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. Haney is not here, but we are Needy Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 171, recorded on January the 18th, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on NeedyPentech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. And today we will be talking about news in Intune and Windows, as well as Whispergate. And we'll also have a bunch of exciting community news to share. Whispergate. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't wait to hear about that. <laughs> or should I say, Whispergate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so Haney couldn't make it today. Uh, she'll be back. Um, well, it's going to be the next episode because we're going to do um, an interview on, on Monday. But more about mm-hmm. that later. So what is new in Intune? Like, is there anything new in Intune? Actually, it is, but only one tiny little thing. But it makes total sense. So have you heard about the filters feature within Intune or conditional access? I am guessing that that is a way to filter or specify which uh, machines are going to be hit by a, a, an Intune policy, correct? Is this policy the right name? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so most of the things you have in Intune is targeted towards a user. So up until now, it's been quite hard to target the appropriate devices because a user may have more than one device. Hold that. Seriously? You're, you're targeting users? You're not specifically targeting uh, devices? Welcome to the 21st century, dude. <laughs> I've, I've never done um, device management and, and this kind no. of stuff. And since it's called MDM and yep. D stands for device management, I kind of thought that you actually did. Cool. Now, please go on. Yeah, but imagine if it's called MUM. Mobile. User management. <laughs> that might actually have been one of the best abbreviations I have ever heard. That is the name of this episode, sir. Mom, it yeah. is. So, still, we are targeting users. There are a bunch of reasons we can talk about that another time. Many people in the community react the same way as you. But filters also gives us an opportunity to say, target this user, but only on a kind of device that we filter in or out. So you get a dynamic application and, and assignment of that. Up until last week or so, you actually had to try an assignment to see if it worked. You couldn't preview the result of your filter. So imagine that you're targeting all users and want to filter out all pro machines and you make a spelling mistake. (laughs) Not good. So I now, can see exactly <laughs> how this would have played out if yeah. I were the, the, the admin here. Disaster yeah. is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. No filter, hashtag. So now you're able to preview the filter results. You may not see everything, but you will see a selection of the devices that will be targeted by a specific policy and a filter. That is a small change, but holy crap, Mm -hmm, it is a mm -hmm. huge change. Yeah. So, uh, and if you continue then to um, some other news in 
Windows. You know, we, we now have two versions of Windows with a bunch of build numbers, Windows 10 and Windows 11, and all of them gets insider previews and betas and dev and all of that. But I will be focusing on Windows 11, and we have had two new previews since last time. And um, the first one is build 22526. And um, like they have it too long, didn't read in the beginning. This build has a good set of changes and improvements as well as fixes. Please be sure to read the list below. <laughs> but then the interesting bits happen. In this preview, you now have wideband speech when you use AirPods. So if you use AirPods, AirPods Pro or AirPods Max, you should be be experiencing a much better audio quality. And since I have so many meetings with people using AirPods, which is a sin, just so you know, if you're using AirPods in your team's meetings, you could as well be without them. But now it will actually be better if you're on a preview that likely won't be released until late spring. Running the AirPods in in Teams meetings, it, it's kind of the equivalent of trying to record anything with a Blue Yeti. <laughs> oh, yeah, but I do agree. I do agree. Use the appropriate audio device for the appropriate recording or speech call. The other bit is that in this release, Credential Guard is now enabled by default on Windows 11 Enterprise, if they are Enterprise joined, so AD or Azure AD joined. You can't opt out, Credential Guard will be turned on. And could you remind me very, very quickly, what is Credential Guard and how does it work? So Credential Guard is a way of protecting your credentials on a machine. If you sign in on a Windows machine, your credentials will be stored in memory and will be easily fetched by someone with local admin permission. So clear text password, the entire shebang. What Credential Guard does is creating a small virtual container which will store your authentication details and protect them, at least most of them, from attackers. So you're, you're sandboxing secrets, basically. Yeah, exactly. And that's on by default in Windows 11. But now it will also be enabled by default if you upgrade to a certain Windows 11 release. And that may prove difficult since some uh, like certificate-based network authentication might not work because you're protecting the credentials you're using to authenticate. So it's, this is not happening now but it will be interesting to see how this plays out in the long run. Are you envisioning um, issues with that upgrade, like the Windows Server upgrade um, <laughs> we had the other day? I think the Windows Server upgrade was probably... Uh, that, that was obviously someone that did some code changes or, of, after a New Year's party. <laughs> I think that, that... I don't know what they did. Um, no, but I, I think it drives home the point that it's 2022 we shouldn't be able to we, we shouldn't do these mistakes we shouldn't be able 
to make these mistakes, but we still do. And we need yeah. to configure for that shit will hit the fan, regardless yeah. of how amazing CICD processes you have, something will inevitably break. Yeah. And you need to design your infrastructure to withstand that because you will make mistakes. Microsoft will make mistakes. Some, someone will make a mistake and you need to have a sturdy, robust environment to withstand that. And and definitely a, a sturdy and robust get out of the dodge uh, card. Okay, something yeah. did break. How do we get out of this? How do we back out of this? Yeah, exactly. Uh, kind of on that topic. <laughs> so it, it's been a very, very quiet few weeks on the, the Power BI and the, the Synapse fronts. I'm kind of uh, expecting a crap ton of new things to drop in the following weeks. Um, mm-hmm. it, it kind of feels that way. It kind of feels like the, the quiet before the storm, if you will. But I saw a very good tweet by Martina Grom on, well, it was a tweet, so it wasn't Twitter. Duh. Um, she says that locking accounts in Azure AD is a sin for external accounts. Those external accounts do not have a chance to leave the organization. Please put a lifecycle and governance policy in place. And I, it was a long time ago uh, since I did any management of, of users or similar in AD. Uh, that was kind of my previous life. And I, I know for a fact that Tony would have been laughing mm-hmm. loud about this. And Haney would have had a few things to say as well. Looking at it from a classical AD perspective, that was the way you did it. You definitely closed the door on old accounts. Be careful if doing the same thing with Azure AD and you have external accounts. But moving back in time then to when you did this, if someone got fired or changed jobs or left wherever you worked, did you lock the account or disable the account or did you remove the account? What did you do? Yes. Um, so uh, we would disable the account, but we mm-hmm. left it in place to figure out if there was something that we needed to uh, to look at or if there was something that needed to be uh, reused or whatever. Then, mm-hmm. of course, we took it away. And you always did that, right? You always um, remove those accounts. So... Here is where it is extremely important that I point out that I was always working in the data part of things. I've never been an actual AD um, administrator. So um, I don't know. I'm sure they did. Because that that is part of the problem that a lot what, of organizations... people are part of the problem? Inconceivable. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That That's a part of the challenge because very few organizations are actually cleaning up AD and that have some good reasons because it's terribly hard to follow a trace of something, do an investigation if you have deleted the actual account. So because of that, I've met organizations that have 5,000 users, 20,000 user accounts because they don't remove them. Uh, we don't have any good ways of doing that. But when we talk about external accounts in Azure AD, it's much simpler because then you have all of the, the automation and governance built in 
So yes, lock it and disable the account, but only for a short period of time. And then remove it if you're certain that they won't come back. That will greatly help you in both governance, but also licensing governance and, and compliance. Yeah, but I think the, the main point that Martina is making is look at the life cycle. Yeah. Don't just disable it and, and call it a day. Yeah, because you will end up with a complete mess. And that is also a huge risk. Because sure. if someone hacks one of your guests' accounts, they have access to your tenant as well. And a guest still have rather high privileges. That they do, that they do. And and when I realized just how Azure AD B2B mm-hmm. works, um, it's fantastic. But to to paraphrase, when you pull the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. It is you're you're opening the door. Uh, maybe you're not making that account a first-class citizen, but it's pretty darn close. Yeah. It, it, it actually, I, I can't remember when they changed that, but a couple of months ago, before they made changes to guest accounts, a guest actually had higher privileges than a standard user inside of Azure AD. They could see more things or do more things. Now I'm scared. Mm-hmm. Is it time yes. to... Uh, Whispergate it. <laughs> yeah, speaking about being scared and, and changes that will happen in the coming weeks. <laughs> so, as many of you know, there is a, um, what should we call it? Are you referring Argument? to the, the coolish war? Yeah, exact. So, a, an argument, pe- people aren't in agreement on who owns a part of the world. We won't mention the the contenders of that part of the world, other than one of them, which, according to the rest of the world, owns their part. But uh, they have now, Ukraine have been hit by a very severe cyber attack. And Microsoft and their Threat Intelligence Center have been part of investigating and, and helping Ukraine counter that attack, which now goes by the name of Whispergate. Do you know how a ransomware works, right? I do. Well, um, mm-hmm. for the most part. Yeah. So it encrypts files. And the entire reason why you do that is because you want a ransom. Yeah. Part of the deal is that if you pay, you get your information back. Well, that's the theory, at least. Mm-hmm. Whispergate is seen first as a ransomware. But under the hood... It actually only have one purpose, and that is to destroy the files. So this is a malware that will destroy, delete, and forever remove the files it hits. So I'm I'm curious. Uh, is it faster to encrypt files on a file system with a decent uh, encryption scheme, which is nigh on impossible to break, than trying to destroy the file by overriding do you think it is easier to to get that back concern compared to uh, to um, encrypting it so looking at how some not all ransomware works they need to be quick it takes time uh, to uh, encrypt a file so in some cases 
it only encrypts part of the file. So it looks encrypted, but it's only parts of it that are actually encrypted and you can reverse engineer it in some cases. Other than that, yes, I would say that it's likely quicker to delete it than encrypt it. And and when I say delete, I mean overwrite 48 times so you can't get it back. Yeah, uh, and I haven't actually seen how well it does it. But it looks like it's, it's actually a file corruptor malware and it hits the master boot record oh, of, lovely. of that file. Yeah. So first it looks like a ransomware, but once it's done, you have nothing left. So this is made to create havoc for the Ukraine government and companies within Ukraine. This is essentially information warfare. Yeah. Of the crudest I, kind. Yeah. Uh, and like looking at what happened the last time Ukraine were target for a major attack, it also hit Maersk. The, uh, yeah, that was the origin of uh, NotPetya. Or am I mixing them together? The attack that hit Maersk originated at a Maersk office in Ukraine. Ah, it was so never that's intended. How it was connected, yeah, right? It was it was never intended to hit them. It was a target against Ukraine. Some say, at least. In this case, it's it's obvious that it's a target, like it's a direct attack against Ukraine, in my view, and many others. And um, you need to be very, like, restrictive with that. And if you have parts of your business or so on in Ukraine, be careful. Um, Microsoft have published a number of detections, uh, indicators of compromise, and some recommended customer actions. But it's it's rather basic what you should do. Include the indicators of compromise in your EDR. Keep control over your authentication activity. We will get into one way of doing that in just a second. Use multi-factor authentication and without a phone number. Use the app or a YubiKey or any other FIDO2 key. And you could also use controlled folder access on your Windows machines that will actually prevent some, not all, ransomware. People are still running things without MFA. Yeah, absolutely. I've had two discussions already this week. One, which were... Maybe we should do the opposite, that we don't target a few people with MFA and exclude everyone else. We could do the other way. Everyone has MFA, and if they don't, can't use it, let's disable it. Well, sounds like a plan. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm shaking my head. Uh, and one way you could protect uh, your authentications is by using Defender for Identity, which is a fantastic product. Uh, it's the cloud equivalent of Azure Threat Analytics or Advanced Threat Analytics, sorry. Uh, and that now have respond capabilities. So if Defender for Identity discovers something in your AD, as an example, that looks suspicious, you could use a group managed service account and actually take remediation actions on that account, disabling it, deleting it, blocking it, doing something with it, which was something you had to do through Defender for Endpoint previously or other means. Now you can do that with from Defender for Identity. 
Huh. Mm -hmm. That should shorten the the response time for sure. Yeah, and I, I think that that also means that you need to have control and do not run things with your <laughs> domain admin accounts. I'm shaking my head again. <laughs> so, um, switching tracks a bit, have you heard the name Kalen Delaney? I've heard the name. I can't say who it is. So it's it's kind of significant that you have because you've never spent any time in the data uh, communities, but you've you've been on the fringes since. Yeah, we we tend to overlap. So Kalen uh, became an MVP in the nineteen ninety three. Whoa, she is the the person behind the SQL Server internals books, and she has written so many books. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at them. See, she's written the, the deep dives, the SQL Server MVP deep dives. She's written books on SQL Server concurrency, the internal series, the internals OLTP series. I could go on and on and on. She is probably the most well-known, um, SQL Server expert, uh, in the world. She joined Microsoft. A while back. And now she uh, announced the other day that she uh, has actually retired. And it's it's hard to overstate the work, the, the value of the work she's done. Like she she has done so much. She has made so many people get interested in in data and in, in SQL Server. Uh, so we all owe her a huge debt of gratitude in the data community. So um, as I said on 200 Twitter, I, I hope you will enjoy um, your vacation, your very long vacation, also known as retirement. So when did the MVP program start? I don't remember. It must have been 94, 93, something like that. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we can find that out. That, that, and, and like, I've said that a couple of times here, and I say that quite often at work that I will draw you into this now as well. You and Kaylin and, and others that have worked for a very long time in the industry, and especially if you have worked within the same area, that's something I really envy because you understand how it actually works, why we are at certain stages based on how the initial, like how the architecture looked 20 years ago and that it still matters. So I, I have the highest respect for individuals who have been focused on one area for that long and really understands the inner workings of something because that's something I likely never will be able to do in the same way because even if I've been working with Intune for, I don't know, eight years, nine years. It's changed so much. It, they made fundamental architectural changes. So it doesn't matter. And I don't, I can't even see how it works behind the curtains. So I will never have that insight into a technology or product. And it, it's, it's funny you should say that because 
hold that exact thought. We're going to come back to that in a, in a very short while. Uh, I, I managed to find the, the answer. 1993. Yeah. So she's been an MVP from the start. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she's... And That's remarkable. What's even more fun is I met her at, um, I think it was SQL Pass or something a couple of years back. And we had a chat and she asked me where I was from. And I said, in shopping. And she said, oh, I've been there many times. And I almost dropped my plate. So it turns out that she actually did training for Microsoft um, <laughs> or through Microsoft here in Linshipping for the same company that our old boss, and I think your boss now, Rage, used yep. to work for. <laughs> so the world is slightly smaller than a football. So it's it's weird. But she knew exactly where our small city is. Yeah. Um, moving on. Something smaller, um, or not so small. Microsoft buys Activision Blizzard. We, at, at one point, we said that we weren't going to talk about gaming and such, yeah. but I think this is just remarkable. And I think it's important to mention that it's Activision, it's Blizzard, and it's King. So Microsoft is now the owner of things like Diablo, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, Candy Crush, Starcraft. Like, it's, it's quite hefty headlines. And they also like Call of Duty. It's their like it's a it's a direct competitor to um, Battlefield, which has been fantastic on Xbox. So I wonder what EA thinks about this as well. For sure. But uh, we actually made a, a small calculation myself and Alexander before starting this recording, and um, this is an all cash transaction of 78.7 billion dollars and to put that into perspective that is more than the gdp so gross domestic product domestic product of luxembourg more than myanmar more than or just around the same as Oman. It's such a remarkable sum of money for a gaming company. And that only makes Microsoft the third largest gaming company. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard to wrap your head around. And I'm very curious to see, when speaking of heads, how many mm -hmm. heads are going to roll at Activision Blizzard, considering their terrible track record for diversity and inclusivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, diversity or inclusion, I should say. So I, I hope that they come down with a pretty big hammer and sort that shit. Yeah. Uh, let, let's just say that Microsoft is the world's highest trending hashtag on Twitter. 400,000 tweets followed by Activision Blizzard at 230,000 tweets currently. Yep, stuff's getting real. Mm -hmm. So uh, going back to what you said about having been here since the start, and 
I started working with databases back in 1997, and I'm still like 20 years um, too late. So the, the the database as a concept, we're we're talking the 70s, and I I just received a couple of of uh, books on um, the space race, um, an interest of mine, and I realized that holy crap, it's like 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Wow, and that means that the database stuff that we take for granted is 50 years. And uh, when it comes to data warehousing as a concept, that's from the mid 90s. Uh, Ralph Kimball and, and company that they came up with the dimensional modeling way of, of doing things. So we've essentially done data modeling like that since the mid nineties. And there was a wonderful blog post. I think that is the best way of putting it that basically asked, do we still need a data warehouse? I mean, we have stuff like data lakes. We have data lake houses. We have Delta Lake. We have data mesh. We have whatever data. And at the end of the day, they they are they're saying that they are solving the same kind of issues, just doing it much better because you can't really store uh, big data stuff such as uh, video and and audio and, and pictures and whatnot inside of a, a normal data warehouse, which is fine. And the, the, the main point of this, this blog post is, yes, it's still not only relevant, but it's still pivotal. It doesn't matter that you have umpteenth new ways of storing things. At the end of the day, you still need to have a data warehouse because that's the only place where you integrate your data. A data lake can store everything, but it cannot integrate it in the same way. So what I'm, I'm, I'm proposed to use this, uh, this blog post as a backdrop and kind of kick the ball back to you. You've been around for quite a, some time and, and things have changed in your side of the, the fence as well. Have you still some established truths that just won't get old? Because I I can't see the concept of the data warehouse getting old. It doesn't matter. It's going to, it doesn't change. It's, it's a fact, basically. Do you have the same kind of of things on, on your side? That's a very good question. And I'm thinking very hard on if there are things like that. But I don't think I have, because a data warehouse, and, and now, correct me if I'm wrong, it's it's only a part of a bigger infrastructure of data management. It does a very specific, like a big but rather specific task. Ish. I'd say that yes, it's a part, but it is by far the main part. Mm-hmm. But it is also so established and so inherently unsexy <laughs> that we are facing enormous issues having people be interested in, in figuring out how they work. Um, yeah, and I think that, that's the, the big difference. Everything I do is super cool. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> no, I... I 
I don't think that I really have anything like that. Because you could argue that, yeah, config manager is a similar thing, but not really. And that's been replaced by something that's newer. It, it still can't do all of the things, but it creates the same kind of value. So, no, I, I think, and I think that's a lot of, like you say, your your area is, might not be the first area within IT you would focus on today. Yeah, Power BI, data management, but not the, again, underlying technology. That's rather a steep learning curve. And I think that's part of the challenge. It's easier to get into another part of IT infrastructure and earn a lot of money. Be cool. And I'm, I'm but, so, so happy that you, you said exactly that. Mm-hmm. No, people coming into IT today or, or people coming from other parts of IT today, mm-hmm. they look at uh, data databases, um, modeling and go, that's, mm-hmm. no, I'd, I'd rather do this cool thing. So yeah. we, we're seeing a proliferation of these glitzy, cool, gooey stuff, um, ideas kind of bolted on top of the the old stuff. But at the end of the day, you still need to know modeling. You still mm-hmm. need to know, how, or at least have a reasonable idea of how it works. Take mm-hmm. Snowflake, for instance, and I'm going to take a lot of flack for this. Snowflake <laughs> gives you the uh, ability to not care so much about modeling. You don't have to. You just have to pay through the nose because you're you're going to need to to give it a, a crap ton of horsepower. So the more you know about the structure, the better you can make the structure and the less horsepower it requires. Mm-hmm. But again, people take the path of least resistance. It's not cool to design a data warehouse. They rather do it in... Power BI through self-service, God knows what. And at the end of the day, you're going to have a house of cards the size of the Empire State Building. This is what we're seeing. And yeah, no, it's, uh, I think it's terrible. And Mm -hmm. I I tend to make the, the mistake of thinking that people have the same background as I do and not factor in the, the, the small detail that I might have 15 or 20 more years than they do. So yeah. finding someone and who really knows how to do data modeling, which I don't claim to really, really know, is rare these days. But mm-hmm. I would argue that that's as important as knowing the latest and greatest. Yeah, and I think that we have spoken to that about that a couple of times, that when you see someone's CV and they say, yeah, I've been working for 30 years within IT infrastructure, well, if you're searching a role or applying for a role as a cloud architect, I don't really care if you have done clustering for 29 years. I care what you have done the last year. But with data, I do think it actually matters. I do think you should care because you understand, again, the underlying. And I think that that, that is part of your, like the, the heritage of data management because Did it's you very, just say heritage yeah 
this is interesting. I've, I'm saying this in my talks now. IT is the only place in the world where heritage and legacy are seen as bad things. Yes. Which I find Agreed. extraordinary stupid. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of my IT legacy. I mean, there there is this classic saying that those who do not know their history are bound to repeat it. Mm-hmm. And we see this happening over and over and over and over again. True. Very true. It's just more glitzy. It's more scalable. I mean, you'd be surprised how high you can scale a mistake in Azure. Yeah. Mistakes have and, their own skews. Yeah. And, and the difference is that the mistakes in Azure is costly. They can be, for sure. Yeah. But I think it's an important topic, and I, I'm, I'm, I won't even try to say that I understand all the bits and pieces of a data warehouse. I have a beautiful data lake house tin cup that I got at the South Coast Summit from our good friend Craig. That's basically the closest I've ever been to a data warehouse. But I do grasp the concept of what you're saying, and I think it's very unique, and I think it's essential that we either move into an area where people are interested or do fundamental changes to abstract away everything. But I don't think that's the right path to take. I think there needs to be uh, a a bit bit of both. I mean, it's not... If you you force people to learn the absolute basics, Mm -hmm. you're kind of stifling development. Mm -hmm. And... It, but it needs to be in, in lockstep. You need to abstract away uh, some things, but you still need to teach the concept. Yeah. And I think that's what comes back to, yes, I've, I've done uh, clusters for 30, uh, 29 years and now I'm going to mm. do cloud. I don't really care about what you've done. Do you understand the concepts? Mm-hmm. That's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. And speaking of concepts, <laughs> I'm on a roll when it comes to segues today. There is something called Data Toboggan. Data Toboggan is an online um, event, an online conference that does one thing and one thing only. Data Toboggan only deals with Synapse. I think it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. It does Mm -hmm. not do anything else than Synapse. If you're not interested in Synapse, you do not want to go to Data Toboggan. So, yes. Um, Haney is going to be speaking at Data Toboggan. It is on the 29th of January. So definitely take a look. It's it's free. I had the immense pleasure of having Matthew Roche speak at the Swedish Parmia user group the other day. And while I am deathly tired of this lockdown, well, not so much <laughs> lockdown as, as this pandemic crap, it does give us the, the opportunity to bring mm-hmm. in people from literally the other side of the world. And it yep. was very, uh, very appreciated. It's It was a great session on on uh, data literacy and data culture. Uh, it definitely sparked some some good, uh, good discussions. Um, data Scotland just opened their call for content um, on the 17th. So yesterday or a couple of days um, when we this is released. And Data Scotland is a fantastic event in Glasgow. I, I highly recommend it if you're into to, uh, data stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will still continue to promote my and Patrick Keller's fantastic conference 
AVD TechFest. And I would like to say that the call for contents is open until the last of January. And we have widened the scope of the conference. So any EUC technology that runs on Azure is welcome. So if you are a brilliant Citrix person that runs Citrix on Azure or VMware or something else, please feel free to submit your sessions. We uh, would be more than happy to welcome you to Amsterdam in April. Is Power BI considered an end-using computing uh, platform in this case? It's a way to end user computing, yes. I'll take that as a no. Yeah. Uh, Nordic Virtual Summit has also opened their call for content. Uh, that ends the 6th of February online again. And I think the event runs from the 17th until the 18th of March. Cool. I want to point out, um, so Mark Lelieveld, um, he's a Power BI MVP, or technically he's a data platform MVP, but he specializes in, in Power BI from uh, the Netherlands. And we had a chat a couple of weeks back about uh, the fact that there there's not much out there about workspace governance and workspace setups and that kind of stuff. And he said, well, okay, I, I, I might start writing some blogs about this. And he did. So he started uh, a new blog series. He just put up the first part of uh, uh, workspace setup and workspace naming. Definitely take a look. We have linked it in the show notes. Um, uh, Mark is fantastic, and uh, this stuff is gold. And uh, I was very happy to hear that my colleague, Tobias Almian, were awarded as an MVP within Enterprise Mobility just two weeks ago. He specializes in Intune, but also Azure DevOps. So he does infrastructure as code for Intune and a lot of other things with Azure DevOps. So for the second time in, I think, two months, he's been featured on the um, Microsoft DevOps blog. And this time it was for her, his blog post on how to send secure messages with Azure Logic Apps, which he then integrates to other bits and pieces within Azure DevOps. So check Tobias works out, especially if you're in Intune, Azure DevOps, or anywhere in between. Really cool. Mm -hmm. And uh, rumor has it that you are now a contractor as well. <laughs> well, uh, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a contractor because I usually keep my schedules and do not charge for things I don't do. Uh, but I've been very fortunate with the contractors I've had when uh, they have helped me build a new office. So one of our our storage outside has been uh, or, or is about to get renovated into a new office for me, which will also be set up to enable me to create some really good video content and uh, yeah, have a have a good place to work, which is slightly bigger than the place I have now, like twice the size. So it will be a very interesting project and uh, I don't know how many hundreds of meters of cable I will have. I think the <laughs> I think the last time I counted in a room that's approximately three times three meters, I will have something like 24 network ports and 24 power outlets at least. I, I can't wait to come uh, and, and do a safari of those nine square meters. <laughs> we we and might will, actually have to do a special on that. Yeah, and I will speak to you about lighting and sound management, and I will also have 
in a future a huge whiteboard. Ooh, cool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we end this episode in now 30 seconds, we are actually on time. I was just about to say that exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, but now the clock is ticking. Yes, I think we we should end to to give yeah. me some space in in the the um, working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> and on yeah. that bombshell, it was fantastic as always. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with an interview next week and catch you then. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need in Tech. Need in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Heini Hilmarinen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at needinbintech.com. <laughs>